Our passage this morning is from Matthew chapter 4, verse 23, through chapter 5, verse 1. And he went throughout all Galilee, teaching in their synagogues and proclaiming the, sim- the gospel of the kingdom and healing every disease and every affliction among the people. So his fame spread throughout all Syria, and they brought him all the sick, those afflicted with various diseases and pains, those oppressed by demons, epileptics, and paralytics, and he healed them. And great crowds followed him from Galilee and the Decapolis, and from Jerusalem and Judea, and from beyond the Jordan. Seeing the crowds, he went up on the mountain, and when he sat down, his disciples came to him. Let's pray. Father, once again we come before you, humbled and in awe of who you are and what you have done. And Lord, we we ask this morning that as we come to your word and we see this great teaching of Jesus, that you would just open our hearts and just teach us, Lord, in a way that we've not experienced before, that we would see you in a new and exciting way. Lord, we come to you expectantly, asking everything in the name of Jesus, your son. Amen. You may be seated. All right, so uh, this morning we get to start our first series of the year, and I've been uh, pretty excited for this uh, for a really long time. I've wanted to do this since the church started. So uh, for the next 18 weeks, we're going to be in the Gospel of Matthew, and specifically, we're going to be in Matthew 5 through 7, what's personally my favorite section of all of Scripture. Uh, It's called the Sermon on the Mount. Uh, And it's given that title for a good reason. Jesus gave this sermon on a mountain. Uh, But it's not just any old sermon, okay? The Sermon on the Mount, uh, these three chapters are are the most commented upon and exposited, meaning studied and interpreted, all that stuff, uh, portion of Scripture. Uh, Like all 66 books of the Bible, uh, more books, Bible studies, all that stuff have been done on the Sermon on the Mount than any other section. Uh, The Sermon on the Mount also, as you'll see in a few minutes, has a lot of weighty, controversial subjects. So this is going to be an interesting 18 weeks. It's also the first teaching done by Jesus, period. Uh, But the the first teaching ever done by Jesus in what we call the New Covenant era. It's so easy as we read the Bible to fall into like in love with letters of Paul, uh, the book of Acts, things like that. Uh, Even seeing Jesus and the miracles he performed, uh, his conflict that he had with the religious leaders, that's all fun, but at the end of the day, our kind of litmus test as Christians is whether or not we follow the teachings of Christ or not. Uh, So another thing you'll see, especially if you've read Matthew 5 through 7 before, is that the things Jesus says in this sermon are pretty much impossible for all of us to follow to the full. Uh, The church father Augustine called this sermon the perfect measure of the Christian life. Uh, In fact, the lens in which you interpret Jesus' words are either going to lead you to a life of like frustration and legalism, or it's going to lead you to a better understanding of what true Christian human flourishing or just human flourishing period looks like, Uh, which is why we're going to go through this slowly. Uh, To get a real picture, what did Jesus mean within the context of the words that he says? Uh, What Jesus Christ is trying to get, not just the people that were on the mountain that day, uh, but us getting to read this scripture uh, together over the next couple months. Uh, So this morning is going to serve as a little bit of an intro uh, or an 
overview. Like, what is this? Uh, this morning, we're going to start kind of our walk up the mountain, right? Uh, understand the context that, that he says this stuff. And then I, I hope that we can just lay a foundation. This is an important message. So we see this message in view of all the other messages. And then next week, we'll start kind of our climb up the mountain. Uh, consider this like a really, really fast training to climb Mount Everest this morning. That's kind of what we're doing. So I have one favor to ask of you this morning. And I know I say this every week, but I, I mean it this week. If you have your Bibles, uh, it could be a real Bible. Uh, it could be a Bible app on your phone. However you can access the Bible, uh, open them to Matthew chapter 5. Uh, if you have a phone version, uh, we use the English Standard Version. I only tell you that because that's what I'm going to be reading out of. It'll just follow better if you read the same thing as I am. Uh, so open there. Not everything this morning is going to be up on the screens. Uh, so while you do that, I'm going to open us in prayer. Uh, Lord, I thank you for who you are. Uh, God, I thank you so much for your word. And Lord, I thank you for this sermon that we are about to uh, go over. God, I pray over the next few months, Lord, you just stir up our hearts uh, just to fall in love with you deeper, God, to be obedient to you uh, and to be a people that understand that you give us grace upon grace. It's in your name I pray. Amen. All right, so Matthew 4, uh, starting in verse 23. Again, we're trying to set a little bit of context this morning. Uh, Matthew says, And he went throughout all Galilee, teaching in their synagogues and proclaiming the gospel of the kingdom and healing every disease and every affliction among the people. Uh, so if you were here last week, this should sound familiar to you uh, because it's just like chapter 9, literally like word for word like chapter 9 where last week we talked about Jesus doing all this and then he had compassion on the lost. Uh, this serves like what Matthew's trying to do here is it serves as a little synopsis. Matthew kind of setting the context of Jesus doing ministry. And if you remember last week, I mentioned that the region of Galilee in which Jesus did most of his early ministry was about one-fifth the size of metropolitan Phoenix, but it was packed with people. Uh, in that one-fifth the size of Metro Phoenix, about three million people lived in the cities and villages. To put that in perspective, all of our city of Phoenix is just under five million people. There were three million people packed within a fifth of that size. So the people that Jesus ministers to are very crowded. They're crammed in, but you see what Jesus is doing. Uh, chapter 4 starts with Jesus being in the wilderness and he's being tempted by Satan after not eating or drinking anything for 40 days, right? It's coming out of the wilderness, tempted by Satan, where Jesus then starts his ministry. Uh, so technically, the Sermon on the Mount is the first public teaching that Jesus ever gave. Uh, two years ago, January 10th, 2021, the day this church launched, none of you, if you were here, probably remember what I preached on. Uh, but what I preached on that day meant a lot to me. I preached on what it means to be the salt of the earth, because uh, that's important. That's the name of our church. And I did that for a reason. I preached on that for a reason right at the beginning. It's the name of our church, and I want you all to remember when we say, stay salty, that's not just a cute little catchphrase. It was like, what does it actually mean? So the first message was important. It was, a, it was the first message by Jesus. That's another reason why we should check out what he's saying here. Jesus has all these cities and villages he's tending to, he's going to one by one, day after day, but both his teachings and his healings, his ministry to the broken is starting to now catch the eyes of everyone that's in the town. 
In verse verse 24, Matthew tells us, So his fame spread throughout all Syria, and they brought him all the sick, those afflicted with various diseases and pains, those oppressed by demons, those having seizures and paralytics, and he healed them. So it wasn't just Galilee where Jesus is making waves. Uh, It was Syria, meaning like all of Palestine, like all of the Middle East. So basically from a 50-mile radius of where Jesus is at in Galilee, people are being brought to Jesus because the word on the street is he could heal. And just think, if you knew someone that could just, if you're sick right now, could just touch you and all of a sudden your sickness would go away, you would do whatever you can to make it to that person, no matter what the cost was or the distance. And look at the people that were brought to Jesus uh, the first group that Matthew tells us were those with various diseases and pains, those people that were just simply sick or just issues that have been plaguing them for a long time. Uh, the second group were people who were demon-possessed having seizures. And this wasn't like people with epilepsy. This are, these are people that are like irrationally insane because they're oppressed by demons. Uh, the third group of people were those who were paralyzed. It was in this moment where the paralytic was lowered through the roof, Right? So serious issues, serious people, broken people being brought to Jesus and healed. Uh, Verse 25 says, And great crowds followed him from Galilee and the Decapolis, and from Jerusalem and Judea, and from beyond the Jordan. So again, three verses in a row that just kind of hammer home the point that Jesus had a really, really far reach in his ministry. I know a lot of us aren't Bible map experts, so what's Matthew trying to communicate here? Uh, By naming these areas, he's trying to tell us that it wasn't just Jewish people that Jesus was having drawn near to him. It was a ton of Gentiles, a ton of people that hadn't grown up that way, non-Jews who found Jesus intriguing by either the things he did or the things he said. So Matthew tells us great crowds followed him, literally day by day followed him. But don't get thrown off by that word followed him. This doesn't mean that the crowds that were with Jesus that day were committed disciples, The crowd that listened to this sermon on the mountaintop was extremely mixed. I'm guessing there were a lot of skeptics in that crowd that day, uh, as well as the 12 disciples who Jesus was about to launch into ministry with him. On the spectrum of discipleship, you had people that may not have known anything at all, and then people who were intimately close with him. So now we turn to Matthew chapter 5. It says, seeing the crowds, he went up, to a, went up on the mountain, and when he sat down, his disciples came to him. Remember, Jesus has been doing ministry all in Galilee. So many commentators think that Jesus saw the attention that was coming on him. He saw the crowds. He knew he wanted to deliver a teaching or a message to all of them, but he had to withdraw to a place where they could all see him. Uh, But that's not the main significance of him going up to a mountain. I'll get to that in a second. At the beginning, I asked you, like, bring your Bible, like, take your Bible out, whether it's a Bible in your hand or on your phone or whatever. Uh, I want to do something a little bit different this morning. Hopefully, you have your Bible open to chapter 5. This morning, I want to take time to read the entire Sermon on the Mount. Uh, There's no slides that go along with it. Uh, I could care less if you're even going to look at me while I read it. But I do ask this. I ask that as we read this, that you follow closely to what Jesus is saying, that you pay attention to his words. Uh, The word of God is far more powerful than anything that I can get up here and say on a Sunday. And so this should, on its own, just kind of act as its own sermon. Uh, You don't really need me to apply it to your life. It's Jesus telling you things. It's Jesus' commands. 
When we hear Jesus' commands, we follow him. That's what's called being a disciple. Uh, But I want to read the entire thing at once. Uh, I think it's just helpful for perspective. Uh, Jesus didn't break this thing into an 18-week series. So let's read this, and then I will muddy the waters and land the plane. Seeing the crowds, he went up on the mountain. And when he sat down, his disciples came to him. And he opened his mouth and taught them, saying, Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are those who mourn, for they shall be comforted. Blessed are the meek, for they shall inherit the earth. Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, for they shall be satisfied. Blessed are the merciful, for they shall receive mercy. Blessed are the pure in heart, for they shall see God. Blessed are the peacemakers, for they shall be called sons of God. Blessed are those who are persecuted for righteousness' sake, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are you when others revile you and persecute you and utter all kinds of evil against you falsely on my account. Rejoice and be glad, for your reward is great in heaven, for so they persecuted the prophets who were before you. You are the salt of the earth, but if salt has lost its taste, how shall its saltiness be restored? It is no longer good for anything except to be thrown out and trampled under people's feet. You are the light of the world. A city on a hill cannot be hidden, nor do people light a lamp and put it under a basket but on a stand, and it gives light to all in the house. In the same way, let your light shine before others so that they may see your good works and give glory to your Father who is in heaven. Do not think that I have come to abolish the law or the prophets. I have not come to abolish them, but to fulfill them. For truly I say to you, until heaven and earth pass away, not an iota nor a dot will pass from the law until it is all accomplished. Therefore, whoever relaxes one of the least of these commandments and teaches others to do the same will be called least in the kingdom of heaven, but whoever does them and teaches them will be called great in the kingdom of heaven. For I tell you, unless your your righteousness exceeds that of the scribes and Pharisees, you will never enter the kingdom of heaven. You have heard that it was said to those of old, you shall not murder, and whoever murders will be liable to judgment. But I say to you that everyone who is angry with his brother will be liable to judgment. Whoever insults his brother will be liable to the council. And whoever says, you fool, will be liable to the hell of fire. So if you are offering your gift at the altar and there remember that your brother has something against you, leave your gift there before the altar and go. First be reconciled to your brother and then come and offer your gift. Come to terms quickly with your accuser while you're going with him to court, lest your accuser hand you over to the judge and the judge to the guard and you be put in prison. Truly I say to you, you will never get out until you have paid the last penny. You have heard that it was said you shall not commit adultery. But I say to you that everyone who looks at a woman with lustful intent has already committed adultery with her in his heart. If your right eye causes you to sin, tear it out and throw it away. For it's better that you lose one of your members than your whole body be thrown into hell. And if your right hand causes you to sin, cut it off and throw it away. For it's better that you lose one of your members than that your whole body go into hell. It was also said, whoever divorces his wife, let him give her a certificate of divorce. But I say to you that everyone who divorces his wife, except on the ground of sexual immorality, makes her commit adultery, and whoever marries a divorced woman commits adultery. Again, you have heard that it was said to those of old, you shall not swear falsely, but shall perform to the Lord what you have sworn. But I say to you, do not take an oath at all. 
either by heaven, for it is the throne of God, or by the earth, for it is his footstool, or by Jerusalem, for it is the city of the great king. And do not take an oath by your head, for you cannot make one hair white or black. Let, let what you say be simply yes or no. Anything more than this comes from evil. You have heard that it was said, an eye for an eye and a tooth for a tooth. But I say to you, do not resist the one who is evil. But if anyone slaps you on the right cheek, turn to him the other also. And if anyone would sue you and take your tunic, let him have your cloak as well. And if anyone forces you to go one mile, go with him two miles. Give to the one who begs from you. Do not refuse to the one who would borrow from you. You have heard that it was said, you shall love your neighbor and hate your enemy. But I say to you, love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you, so that you may be the sons of your Father who is in heaven. For he makes his sun rise on the evil and on the good, and sends rain on the just and the unjust. For if you love those who love you, what reward do you have? Do not even the tax collectors do the same? And if you greet only your brothers, what more are you doing than others? Do not even the Gentiles do the same? You therefore must be perfect, as your heavenly Father is perfect." Beware of practicing your righteousness before other people in order to be seen by them, for then you will have no reward from your Father who is in heaven. Thus, when you give to the needy, sound no trumpet before you as the hypocrites do in the synagogues and in the streets, that they may be praised by others. Truly I say to you, they have received their reward. But when you give to the needy, do not let your left hand know what your right hand is doing, so that your giving may be in secret, and your Father who sees in secret will reward you. And when you pray, you must not be like the hypocrites, for they love to stand and pray in the synagogues and at the street corners, that they may be seen by others. Truly I say to you, they have received their reward. But when you pray, go into your room and shut the door and pray to your Father who is in secret, and your Father who sees in secret will reward you. And when you pray, do not heap up empty phrases as the Gentiles do, for they think that they will be heard for their many words. Do not be like them, for your Father knows what you need before you even ask him. Pray then like this, our Father in heaven, hallowed be your name. Your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread and forgive us our debts as we also have forgiven our debtors. And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. For if you forgive others their trespasses, your heavenly Father will also forgive you. But if you don't forgive others their trespasses, neither will your Father forgive your trespasses. And when you fast, do not look gloomy like the hypocrites, for they disfigure their faces that their fasting may be seen by others. Truly I say to you, they've received their reward. But when you fast, anoint your head and wash your face, that your fasting may not be seen by others, but by your Father who is in secret. And your Father who sees in secret will reward you. Do not lay up for yourselves treasures on earth where moth and rust destroy and where thieves break in and steal, but lay up for yourselves treasures in heaven where neither moth nor rust destroys and where thieves do not break in and steal. For where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. The eye is a lamp of the body, so if your eye is healthy, your whole body will be full of light, but if your eye is bad, your whole body will be full of darkness." If then the light in you is darkness, how great is the darkness? No one can serve two masters, for either he will hate the one and love the other, or he will be devoted to the one and despise the other. You cannot serve God and money. Therefore I tell you, do not be anxious about your life, what you will eat or what you will drink, nor about your body, what you will put on. Is not life more than food and the body more than clothing? Look at the birds of the air. 
They neither sow nor reap nor gather into barns, and yet your heavenly Father feeds them. Are you not of more value than they? And which of you, being anxious, can add a single hour to this span of life? And why are you anxious about clothing? Consider the lilies of the field, how they grow. They neither toil nor spin, yet I tell you, even Solomon in all his glory was not arrayed like one of these. But if so, God clothes the grass of the field, which today is alive and tomorrow is thrown into the oven, will he not much more clothe you, O you of little faith? Therefore do not be anxious, saying, what shall we eat? Or what shall we drink? Or what shall we wear? For the Gentiles seek after all these things, and your heavenly Father knows that you need them all. But seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness, and all these things will be added to you. Therefore, do not be anxious about tomorrow, for tomorrow will be anxious for itself. Sufficient for the day is its own trouble. Judge not that you not be judged. For with the judgment you pronounce, you will be judged, and with the measure you use it, it will be measured to you. Why do you see the speck that is in your brother's eye, but do not notice the log that is in your own eye? Or how can you say to your brother, let me take the speck out of your eye when there's a log in your own eye? You hypocrite. First take the log out of your own eye, and then you'll see clearly to take the speck out of your brother's eye. Do not give to the dogs what is holy, and do not throw your pearls before pigs, lest they trample them underfoot and turn to attack you. Ask, and it will be given to you. Seek, and you will find. Knock, and it will be opened to you. For everyone who asks receives, and the one who seeks finds, and to the one who knocks it will be open. Or which one of you, if his son asks him for bread, will give him a stone? Or if he asks for a fish, will give him a serpent? If you then, who are evil, know how to give good gifts to your children, how much more will your Father who is in heaven give good things to those who ask him? So whatever you wish that others would do to you, do also to them, for this is the law and the prophets." Enter by the narrow gate, for the gate is wide and the way is easy that leads to destruction, and those who enter by it are many. For the gate is narrow and the way that is hard that is leads to life, and those who find it are few. Beware of the false prophets who come to you in sheep's clothing, but inwardly are ravenous wolves. You will recognize them by their fruits. Are grapes gathered from thorn bushes or figs from thistles? So every healthy tree bears good fruit, but the diseased tree bears bad fruit. A healthy tree cannot bear bad fruit, nor can a diseased tree bear good fruit. Every tree that does not bear good fruit is cut down and thrown into the fire. Thus, you will recognize them by their fruits. Not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven, but the one who does the will of my Father who is in heaven. On that day, many will say to me, Lord, Lord, do we not prophesy in your name and cast out demons in your name and do mighty works in your name? And then I will declare to them, I never knew you. Depart from me, you workers of lawlessness. Everyone then who hears these words of mine and does them will be like a wise man who built his house on the rock. And the rain fell and the floods came and the winds blew and beat on that house, but it did not fall because it had been founded upon the rock. And everyone who hears these words of mine and does not do them will be like a foolish man who built his house on the sand. And the rain fell and the floods came and the winds blew and beat against that house and it fell. And great was the wall, great was the fall of it. And when Jesus finished saying these things, the crowds were astonished at his teaching. For he was teaching them as one who had authority and not as their scribes. So obviously that took me a little bit, right? There's a lot going on in those three chapters. Uh, you can see that over the next 18 weeks, we're going to encounter a lot of difficult things, a lot of things that Jesus Christ says on that mountain where we're going to hear it and we're going to start to wonder, like, where do we fit 
Um, if you're in a small group, if you go to like a home group, I'm going to have you guys read the same thing in your home group this week. And as a group, you're going to answer the question of like, what's the hardest thing to hear in those three chapters? Uh, ask yourself that question as you sit in your seat right now. Uh, what is the hardest thing to digest? Blessed are those who are persecuted. You're blessed when you're reviled against. You're blessed when you're falsely accused. How about those of us in this room that struggle with anger? And Jesus tells us that being angry with someone is just the same as murdering them. Uh, looking at a woman with lustful intent, that's the same thing as committing the act of actual adultery. Uh, ripping out your eye if it causes you to sin, cutting off your hand. We all have two eyes and two hands. Uh, being considered an adulterer if you marry a divorced woman. I'm not even through chapter 5, and hopefully you're starting to pick up on my drift. Uh, you read for three minutes into the Sermon on the Mount, and we start to quickly see that those of us in this room who think we might be the holiest person in the room, we massively pale in comparison to the standard in which Jesus Christ is asking us to live. Just the verse of lusting after women. Every dude in this room is guilty of that, or you're guilty of being a liar. It's one of the two. If you're here, right, and that's the standard, we read this, and all of us, I repeat, all of us in this room, we're right here. If the standard's here, all of us fall down here. There's no way any of us in this room can fulfill everything that Jesus is asking. But here's the key to this entire sermon. Jesus says in chapter 5, verse 17, he says, Do not think that I have come to abolish the law or the prophets. I've not come to abolish them, but to fulfill them. So if you're new to church, the law and the prophets, that's Jesus' way of saying the entire Old Testament, right? And in the Old Testament, the people of God, the Jews, the Israelites, Abraham's people, whatever you want to call them, they are given a specific standard in which they must live. And the entire Old Testament is filled with how the people of God just fail God over and over and over. They can never fulfill the standard that God gave them. And that standard was called the law. And where was the law handed down to God, by God, to his people? On a mountain, Mount Sinai to Moses. What's our text this morning? Seeing the crowds, he went up to a mountain. Then Jesus, over three chapters, Matthew 5 through 7, proceeds to walk up to the mountain, just like Moses walked up to the mountain, and then he proceeds to give the thousands of people who are gathered around him that day a new standard in which they must live, all while saying, hey, the old standard isn't dead, but I am now here. I'm the one that's come so that the old standard may be fulfilled through me. So what does that mean for us this morning? It means that over the next 18 weeks, we're going to hit some really hard things that are going to make some of us uncomfortable. I'm going to lose sleep on Saturday nights over what I'm going to get up here and say sometimes. Uh, we're all going to see that we fall short in many ways, and we're never going to meet the standard. But what we must see these entire 18 weeks is that it's Jesus Christ who meets the standard for us. Uh, I want you to remember this one word. It's imputation. I know that's not a common word in our vernacular, but imputation. The word imputation means credited to, 
charged or put on your account. Uh, So let me give you a quick example of this word. Let's say that driving home, I hope this happens to none of you, but let's say you just get a flat tire. You roll over a nail, you wake up tomorrow morning, you realize that your your tire is flat. Uh, You put the spare on, you drive down to Discount Tire this morning, and they tell you, Mrs. Smith, uh, you not only need to replace your flat tire, the other three tires are more bald than your pastor's head. Uh, the total, Mrs. Smith, for all four tires is going to be $745.95. Uh, if you're a normal person, you sit there like, oh boy, uh, I'm either going to drive around some bald tires or I don't have $745 I was planning on spending today. That's like the price of two dozen eggs. Like, how am I going to pay for this? And then all of a sudden, some dude who's already sitting there, he's already dropped his car off at Discount Tire. Some dude just walks up, waltzing with his credit card, walks up to the employee and says, hey, put Mrs. Smith's tires on my account. Put it on my card. Put it on my tab. In that moment, you, Mrs. Smith, we're all Mrs. Smith. We're all identifying as Mrs. Smith. In that moment, you are no longer responsible for paying for your tires, The man who put it on his account is the one who's responsible for paying for your tires. So three ways that the word imputation happens within the all of Scripture, all 66 books have one story. Number one is that because Adam sins in Genesis 3, because him and Eve eat the apple, they sin, his sin is then imputed to everyone who's born after him. So 5,000 years later, a baby that's born today is built with, built, born, born into sin because just as Adam was guilty of sin, we are guilty of sin. His sin is imputed to us. There's nothing we can do about that. So that's number one. Number two is that the sin that we inherit or that's imputed to us from Adam it is then imputed to Jesus Christ when he dies on the cross. All the sin you've ever done, All the wrath you've ever deserved, put on Christ that day on the cross. You individually, not corporately or anything like that. You individually, all the imputation that's given to you by Adam was then transferred to Christ on the cross, taken off of you so that he's the one who can make the sacrifice. So that leads to number three. Because Christ did that on the cross, or he's the substitute of being on the cross instead of you being on the cross, all Christians, I repeat, Christians in this room now have the righteousness of Christ imputed to us. If you're not a Christian in this room, you're stuck at number one. You're still just like, I got the imputation of sin from Adam and it's still on you. But everybody else in this room, that's a Christian. God's righteousness is imputed to us as Christians. That simply means that even though we fall short, even though we do not meet the standard, even though we sin, we have the righteousness of God. And the righteousness of God is credited to us. It's put on our account. It's reckoned to be ours, a.k.a. the same righteousness that Christ had. As the only person who could have stood up on the mountain that day And say all these things. He's the only human being that's ever walked this earth that could fulfill everything that I just took 15 minutes to read. He's the one that fulfilled it in every single way. He completely fulfilled the law. He lived a life without sin. That same righteousness, that same perfection is credited to us because of God lavishing his grace upon us by giving us his son, Jesus Christ. 
This is such a key thing to understand as Christians. I'm not up here saying that sin doesn't plague us, that we don't fall short, that we shouldn't feel grieved when we sin against God. What I'm trying to show you is that you will always fall short because sin does that to you. But in the eyes of God, you stand before God as righteous because Jesus Christ did all the work for you. He didn't need to hand us a law that day because he fulfilled the law on our behalf. So the goal for us now as God's children isn't just to just sit back on our laurels and drift. Uh, the imputation of righteousness to our account should produce in us an obedience that simply wants to be like him. Uh, people that want to obey him, want to draw near to him. Nothing you ever will do for wh what Jesus did for you that day, nothing will ever love you or sacrifice for you more than what Christ did on the cross. That right there should produce obedience. But here's the deal. You have to sit in the presence of Christ in order to get more of him. Uh, I said this on Christmas Eve, I think. I'm a white guy. If I take my shirt off in the middle of July and stand outside uh, from the hours of like noon to 3 p.m., I'm going to need a lot of aloe vera that night, okay? I'll wake up the next morning looking more like a lobster than a human being. Why is that? It's because the exposure of the sun changed my skin color. The same way, exposure to the presence of Christ changes you and leads you to a life not of legalism and rule following, but human flourishing. Uh, we all want to flourish in life, right? We all take a million different paths. We read all these self-help books, yet we all just kind of intuitively know. You could be a Christian or a non-Christian in this room. You kind of know when your heart, your mind, and your soul are together and right, everything else just kind of follows, right? You know, on the Sermon on the Mount, it's interesting because Jesus is going to hit every area of our life. And I know I'm out of time. We'll just roll with it. It teaches us that even stuff like suffering or being done wrong or not having a lot, being poor, being broken, all those things should produce in us not a sadness but a contentment. Because I don't know, at its core, all we need as Christians, all we need as humans is the presence of God. That's why the Catholic Church interprets these three chapters like they do. They say, well, only the priests can fulfill all that. The rest of us, normal people who just show up to Mass, no way we can do that. As Christians, we interpret opposite. We say there's no way any of us can reach this level. Not one person in this congregation can reach this level. Not even me, and I'm their pastor. Thank God that Christ could re reach it for us, right? So when we don't measure up, we have to realize there's this thing called grace. It's grace upon grace. When we fall short, there's grace. There's Christ in us because we are in Christ. There's the Holy Spirit that lives inside of us. It's spending time in his continuous presence. The people that day on the mountain, they got to be in Jesus' presence that day as he taught them. We don't need a mountain. We have the Holy Spirit living inside of us. But there they were on that day, thousands of people on a mountain sitting at his feet. When do you sit at Christ's feet? When do you spend time in Christ's presence? Uh, on Tuesday, I read this passage to myself in my office. Uh, I didn't want to make this sermon too long, but I lost that battle. Um, give me grace. I read this, and I just went up, and I went on a run. I was trying to, like, process all of it, and so I just went on a run. Uh, no headphones, no podcast, nothing. Just three miles of me hearing myself breathe really heavy. And legit, I didn't even get out of my neighborhood. I just heard this song in my head. 
Uh, I hadn't heard this song since I went to Praise City Church in Levine, Arizona in 2008, so literally like 15 years ago. It's this song called Just to Be Close to You by a guy named Fred Hammond. Most of you have no idea who that is. Uh, Here's the lyrics. This is the whole song. Just to be close to you, just to be close to you, just to be close to you is my desire. That's the entire song for like five minutes. Some of you would lose your mind if we sang that. But I'm singing it, literally, like out of breath, asthma attack. I'm just singing it. And I just kept telling God, God was putting this in my heart. I just kept telling God, like, God, I just want nothing more than to be in your presence. I want it to be you. That's all I desire. And you know why? Because I know that in God's presence, there's peace. I know that in God's presence, there's calm. There's ability to understand that through trial or great things, all those things, we fall into the arms of the God of the universe, and he loves us. And when we fall into his arms, he pulls us in close, and he doesn't just pull us in, he keeps you there. So you want to flourish? Spend time in his presence. The more time in his presence, you can clearly see what is of him and what's not of him. You know, I always think of 1 Thessalonians 5.17 when Paul says, pray without ceasing. Like, what in the world does that mean? How is that possible? Like, Paul, don't you know I got a phone call to make? I got a kid I got to tell to quit climbing on the couch? I think what Paul's hitting at is just the heart of the Christian life. It's to live life in Christ's presence. It's to make a relationship with God just the normal rhythm of your day. You want to know why 90% of us in this room are filled with anxiety and depression and all those different things? It's because God is an aspect of our day or our week. He doesn't flood the entire calendar. Guess what? When we spend time in the presence of God, it makes you more like him. Suddenly now, the Sermon on the Mount, the passage on divorce, isn't so damning because leaning into Christ every day makes me the man and the husband that I should be. Suddenly, it's not so tempting to fill my life with anger for people who don't please me, which Jesus equates to murder, because now you live your life in the presence of Jesus Christ where peace exists, and peace is the opposite of anger. Suddenly, for a lot of us in this room, just the white-knuckling we do as a Christian to try to be good and all that other garbage, you instead understand that Christ was good on your behalf. His righteousness was imputed to you the moment you believed in him, and you can simply rest in him. It's grace. It's grace that's given to us. It's grace that's given to you, credited to your account, completely undeserved, Remember that over these next 18 weeks. Let me pray. Father, I thank you for how good you are. Uh, Lord, I thank you so much for the concept of grace uh, that a lot of us just seem to forget. Um, Father, I thank you for the forgiveness of sins. God, the sacrifice of your son on the cross. Uh, A big word like imputation, how how just his righteousness is credited to us when we don't deserve it. Uh, God, I thank you for how great you are. Uh, So, Father, over these next several months, even this morning, God, just stir up our hearts just to fall deeper in love with you. Uh, God, where your presence is all that we seek, Lord, where your peace is all that we seek, uh, Father, let us just want more of you and less of us. Uh, Let you increase, let us decrease. And so, God, I just ask this morning that you just work on our hearts. Uh, Stir them up, Lord, to press deeper into you. It's in your name I pray, amen. Hey, if you want to know more about who Jesus is or you have questions or you need prayer, uh, I and some other people will be over by the prayer sign. We'd love to talk and pray with you this morning.